Our reading this morning is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. You can follow along on the screen, or it'll also be in your leaflet, or if you picked up a blue Bible on your way in, you'll find it on page 861 in there. I'll just give you a minute to find it. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So everyone's leaving in protest, is that what's happening? It is great to be with you, even if only for just today. Uh, we are going to be looking at that, that passage from John's Gospel, so please do have it open in front of you, either in the leaflet or in the Bibles. And uh, there's an outline in the leaflet too that will just give you an idea of where we're heading. So let me pray as we come to look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great love and mercy towards us in your Son. And we pray that as we... Uh, consider it today. You'll help us both to understand it and to work out its implications uh, for our lives. Uh, Father, stir our minds and hearts, refresh them with the grace that comes from you. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I became a follower of Jesus when I was about 20 years old, so I was an undergraduate student at Adelaide University. If at that time you asked me what I thought Christians were like, I reckon I would have said something like this. You know, Christians are generally 20 years behind in the fashions. You know, they wear socks under their sandals, uh, singlets under their shirts, and they pants up around their armpits, you know. That, that sort of picture. Um, that Christians are people who trade 60 to 70 years of fun and excitement in this world for an eternity in heaven with God and sharing with other people that are as boring as they are, right? That, that sort of... Uh, picture of heaven. And if you asked me about God, I would have said he was uh, a cosmic sort of policeman, you know, someone who patrolled uh, hiding around corners, waiting for people to make mistakes before he jumped out and would catch them in the act. You know, someone that made you feel guilty and on the back foot all the time. When you read the New Testament and you come face to face with the person of Jesus, like we're going to do this morning as we look at John chapter 2, you cannot have that view of God. 
It's actually an impossibility to conclude that God is like that. So let's look at it together. Let's um, refresh our minds with the nature of God as we see uh, the Lord Jesus strutting. Uh, A bit of background is useful. So obviously when we come to John chapter 2, we're in a a wedding banquet, you know, reception type situation, right? So I know that uh, this is a congregation that's got a few you know, engagement's been announced recently and uh, the Ditter family are in the throes of what do we do, what do we do, how do we get a plan, how do we get organised. I want you to imagine for a moment, okay, that uh, one of the, you've been invited along to one of the, the Ditter girls' receptions, okay, you're, uh, let's say, it's, I don't know, where you're going, let's say it's Adelaide Oval, don't be embarrassed, Sophie, it's okay. <laughs> okay, so, you know, we're, you know, we're there at the reception and Bruce and Judy looking proud as punch and uh, let's say it's Adelaide Oval. Everyone's in, we're all sitting down, you know, just after the bridal party have come in, they sit at the top table and we're looking forward to a terrific night, okay? It's just going to be superb. Now, at that moment, the, uh, the master, uh, the, you know, the person who runs the venue makes his way to the front and to the microphone, looking just a tad serious and uh, taps on the microphone, you know, and uh, says... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I have an announcement to make, and it's not a very pleasant one. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ditter have failed to pay the account for the venue, and so therefore we're not going to be in a position to serve any food or wine tonight. And if you could all just, in an orderly way, get up and leave the venue, we would really appreciate it, okay? Huh? I want you to imagine you were there at that moment. What do you do, right? Well, you simply don't look at Bruce and Judy, you know. <laughs> Sort of, oh, how embarrassing is this, you know? I mean, you would just shrivel up and die uh, at, at that sort of moment, let alone the parents, right? Uh, if you can imagine that, get yourself into that sort of feeling, right, and then just multiply it by 10, then you've got the scene that we're in at this wedding feast in Galilee. Okay, the first, East, the first century Middle Eastern culture, they took their entertaining pretty seriously. So if you went along to a wedding feast at this time, uh, if the food wasn't up to scratch, it was actually possible for the guests to sue the parents of the bride, right? Can you imagine that? I mean, we would, if we get to a place and someone serves us food we don't particularly like, we'd just say, oh, it's lovely, thank you very much. You know? <laughs> We're really polite, aren't we? And it's the same when it comes to the gifts. The bride and the groom, you should note this, Seth, you know, and Phoebe, the bride and the groom, if they got gifts they didn't think were up to scratch, they could sue the guests, all right? Not, we would never do that. we just rewrap them and send them on to somebody else, don't we? You know? I mean, you know, there's always a solution to this. But first century culture was very much like that. So here we are, it's towards the end of the reception and suddenly they work out, the steward of the feast, no more wine. No more wine. And you can almost picture the bridegroom rushing off to check his litigation insurance. (laughs) This is a serious moment. Into that situation steps Jesus and he sorts out the problem by turning water into wine. Now, I want to dig into that a little bit more, but just for a second, I want to step back and go sideways because there are often a couple of things in this account that tend to distract people. And I want to deal with those distractions before we look more closely at the passage that we're looking at. Firstly, it's to do with Jesus and alcohol. Uh, We know that in our society, when it comes to alcohol or other substances, there's an incredible abuse problem. 
uh, a misuse of those sort of things that destroys lives on a regular basis. And so the question that often comes up, particularly from those who are followers of Jesus, is surely Jesus wouldn't have supplied alcoholic wine uh, to this sort of occasion. Surely he wouldn't have done that. And so some commentators have said what Jesus did was he provided non-alcoholic wine, uh, that, you know, that that was the case. Although bear in mind, the alcoholic content of wine in this day was probably fairly low. We're probably talking about one and a half, two percent 2%. So it's, it's a low sort of content. So the idea of non-alcoholic wine is one possibility people raise. Or some even suggest it was a bit of a joke, you know, that... Um, we didn't have any more wine, but we did have lots of water in these big containers. So the steward of the feast got some water and brought it to, you know, the master of ceremonies. And uh, he, he didn't, not wanting to embarrass the family, said, ah, you know, or, you know, that, you know, this is a, a beautiful drop, you know, Puritat 2016, you know, uh, sort of lighten the moment a bit, you know. It, both those explanations really def- defy the imagination as well as the text, okay, and the way in which the Bible actually reads. When you go to Psalm 104, verse 15, we're told there that it's God who gives wine to gladden the heart of man. Now, we tend to think it's, you know, Penfolds or wolf blasts or something like that, but it's God. He was the provider of all good gifts. And here it is Jesus who provides, and he does provide range Hermitage wine. Top quality, lots of it. You see, when it comes to the Bible's attitude towards alcohol, it's the drinker that is the problem, not the drink. And often that is the case in creation. Often it's the problem of the way in which we abuse or misuse good things that God gives us uh, rather than the actual uh, item itself. Okay, that's... That's the scene. That's the first thing. The second distraction, I think, is often the way Jesus uh, seems to interact with his mother. So Jesus' mother steps in, asks him to do something, and Jesus appears to be just a bit rude, don't you think? A bit abrupt. Uh, uh, She comes up, um, tells him about the problem, and he says, Woman, why do you involve me? Now, other translations have, Dear woman... Why do you involve me? I don't think it helps much. Uh, it, just, it just feels a bit, you know, I was trying to, condescending, you know, I was thinking in my family, if Sue, you know, said, Paul, you know, how about mowing the lawns? And I said, dear woman, why do you involve me? You know, I, 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 I really don't think I'm going to get a great response. You know, uh, this is probably, can I just say, it is formal. The language is formal. No question about that, but it's not rude. It's definitely not that. What it is doing, though, Jesus at this point is at a level formally distancing himself from his mother because he doesn't want the divine timetable dictated by his mother. Okay, He's on a mission, and Mary will not be the one who determines the framework of that mission. So there is a distancing. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Okay, a couple of distractions. Let's, let's turn now and look at what's going on. We come into John chapter 2. Jesus turns water into wine. And I think for years and years and years, I thought, this is a really impressive miracle. 
This is God breaking into his world and proving that he is God, has power and authority, you know, by demonstration of his miraculous uh, authority. But I've come to a conclusion that that's actually not the prime thing that's going on here in John chapter 2. And in fact, often when you adopt that sort of approach to Jesus' miracles, you're unwittingly becoming a deist instead of a Christian. Let me explain what I mean. We know that God made the world and he rules the world. But often I hear Christians talking as if God made the world a bit like a a wind-up toy or a battery-operated toy, you know, set the world in motion, wound it up or stuck in the batteries and off it goes. God then steps back, pondering what he's done and observing all he's set in motion and then occasionally, like in John chapter 2, he jumps back in just to remind everybody he's still around the place. I think I read John chapter 2 like that for years and years and years. Can I say that is not a Christian view of the world and it's not a right reading of this particular text. God is the creator of the world, but nothing happens in this world except that God superintends it moment by moment by moment. It's his world and he rules it constantly. See, as we sit here today, a hundred odd people in this room or whatever it is, all of us, I take it, because all your eyes are open, all your hearts are beating, okay? And you don't think about it much though, do you? Just as you listen, your heart just beats quietly in your chest. But can I say, live for a second, God took his hand off this world or off your life. That's what happens. You see, you're not a mechanism that God has wound up and set in motion for a period of time. God knows the days of your life. He monitors every heartbeat. Now, that defies my capacity to understand, but that is a reality. We have a God who rules over all things. You understand what that means? If, if, if you've got two people, say, who are suffering with cancer, one undertakes chemotherapy, one is prayed for by Christian friends, and both are healed. God has healed them both. Now, it's not a doctor that healed one and God who healed the other. God rules the whole world. He has authority over everybody, everything, every situation. That is the reality. Now, if that is the case, what is this miracle which is called a sign? What's going on here? What does it mean? Come with me to uh, verse 11, the last verse that was read for us by Anne. We're told there that what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And a sign that reveals Jesus' glory. Signs by their very nature direct you somewhere or uh, indicate an action you should take. Uh, We had some friends across from the UK with us last week. We brought them up here to the hills, took them up to Mount Lofty and we went past one of the entrances on the freeway that, you know, had that big sign that says, when you go the wrong way, it says, 
Wrong way, turn back. They laughed. They said, really? You know, like the, I think they thought it were a bit silly. But, uh, you know, the signs, you see that sign, you know what you're meant to do. It's a clear indication. What we have here is a sign that is Jesus is doing something that points us somewhere. And we're told that it's a sign that reveals Jesus' glory. Now, glory is uh, not a word that we use much these days, I don't think. Uh, But it is a word that points us to the fullness of something or when we see something in all its power or in all its beauty. Uh, That's that's what it's doing. So, for example, earlier in the year we had uh, the Olympics. And in the Olympics, uh, you may remember that there was a woman who won the gymnastic gold medal, right? Her name was Simone Biles. Now, I did gymnastics a number of years ago. And when I saw her, Simone, uh, I could not believe. It was athletic perfection in motion. That's the way it appeared to me. When she won the gold medal, you could see that what she'd done uh, was achieved her moment of glory, right? The, the, the culmination of all her efforts uh, in winning that gold medal. Jesus is demonstrating his glory. But what's his glory? What's going on there? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 4. Notice what Jesus says at that that point. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, what hour is he talking about? It's a stock word that's used by Jesus or a phrase that's used, my hour, the hour, my hour. goes all the way through John's gospel. Later on in John chapter 7, verse 30, again we're told that his hour that is Jesus' hour, had not yet come. In chapter 12, verse 23, again we're told that the the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now in chapter 12, when he says the hour has come, Jesus is at that moment just about to go to the cross where he will die for the sins of the whole world. And even back in John chapter 2, He's pointing us in that direction. He's pointing us to the hour when he hangs on the cross, when he pays for the sin of the world, where the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the justice of God for a lost and sinful world are completely on display. Uh, God's mercy towards sinners like you and me, that's his glory. But here's the question. Having thought about those key ideas, how does this sign water being changed into wine, how does that reveal the glory of God and point us to his death on the cross? What's, what's water into wine got to do with his glory? Look with me again at, at uh, this encounter. Uh, this is a generous act for a groom who's in big trouble. Notice what it says in verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and each held from uh, 20 to 30 gallons or 80 to 115 litres. That's about what it contained. 
Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Here we are. We're nearing the end of the party because the wine's ran out. Uh, these, you know, uh, wedding ceremonies, they could go on for seven days in this culture. Not like us. Afternoon and evening, we're done. You know, but these ones could go for seven days. So seven days, we're getting near to the end of it. And we've run out of wine. And into that situation, with maybe a hundred or so people, that would be a fairly big wedding gathering of the time, into that context, Jesus makes 150 to 180 gallons of top quality wine. Now, I'm not sure what the parties are like that you go to, but this seems to me like overkill. Uh, It seems like way too much. 900 bottles of Grange Hermitage wine just before 100 people head home. That's the situation we're in. Why so much? Why such good quality? Why use these particular stone pots? What you need to know is that the, uh, the Old Testament prescribed a whole series of uh, rules and regulations for people who are faithful to God to follow. Uh, you know, the, the Bible makes it clear that by nature... We're people who deserve the wrath of God. There's a gulf between us us and God. We're unclean or unholy is the way in which the Old Testament expresses it. And if you went to a place like Leviticus, it prescribes all sorts of rules and regulations for making yourself right with God. Uh, The Jews, by Jesus' day, had refined this to a really... It was an art form. And what they had to do was they had to wash themselves or purify themselves on a regular basis whenever they had interactions with people. So uh, they'd need to wash all their utensils in a certain way. If they went out shopping, they had to wash themselves when they came home from shopping. Went to a funeral, they'd have to wash themselves because they'd encountered a dead body. If they met someone in the street, they had to wash themselves. Whatever they did, the whole of life was all about ritual washing and every time it was a reminder to them of the vast gulf that existed between them and God. They were waiting for a day when all this would disappear, where they wouldn't have to do it anymore, a day of refreshing and a day of excitement when the Messiah came. And so they knew that these rules were provisional. A bit like the earlier gathering, I was talking to someone who's moving house, but the house they're moving into is not quite ready, so they're going to go into a rental for a short time before they get to the house they're going to. Now, what that means is going to a rental, they just sort of make do with something they don't really want uh, until they get to the destination they really want to be in. A bit like that with the Old Testament. There was a provision for making do until they got to what God had finally provided in his son, as it turns out. That's the situation we're in. It was an enormous burden for these Jews And what Jesus does is he takes these pots that represent this uncleanness and this gulf between them and God and he fills it up, fills all these jars up with all this wine. And it it was a striking symbol of what God was doing. Wine, which the Old Testament indicated was a sign of the coming of the Messiah, a sign of the liberty and the freedom that the Messiah would bring, a sign of the age when God would rescue people from sin. Back in Amos chapter 9, 
uh, speaks of this day, this day of the Messiah, and captures the idea of the overflowing wine that would be a mark of that day. Listen as I read it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the ploughman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Do you know what Jesus is doing here? Right, 180 gallons of wine, these jars that represent ceremonial washing, fills them up with wine. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm here, let the party begin, right? You know, that, I mean, he wouldn't have done that, but you understand that that is what he is communicating, that now he is present. This is the age that God has promised, an age of liberty and excitement. The old ceremonies, they've been done away with. Let me reflect with you for just a few moments. What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about what it means to follow God? Uh, firstly, about God. I don't know what sort of image you had of God, have of God now or you've had of God in the past. Uh, maybe you have a picture of God as being a bit of a grandfather God, you know, wound up the world, set it in motion, sits back, waits for the expiry date. Maybe that's your picture of what he's like. Maybe you do have a parking inspector view of God. You know, you sort of get your car organised, you come back 10 minutes late and the parking inspector's already been there and given you a ticket. You know, the God who monitors, hovering around corners, waiting for people to disappear so he can find you. Maybe your view of God is like... Maybe you think of God uh, in images of your own father and maybe that relationship wasn't a terrific one. You could never live up to his expectations never felt you were loved. All of us have got different pictures of God running around in our heads. Can I say that here we encounter God face to face with a God who is full of generosity and full of grace. A God who steps into our world to solve our biggest problem, the gulf that exists between us and God because of our sin. The God who comes in and performs this sign to point us to the cross. The cross where we see the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God that just overflows. That's what this sign is all about. It's also a sign that transforms the way in which you think about the Christian life, the way in which you regard your ongoing relationship with God. I know a lot of people who wouldn't regard themselves as Christians who have quite a negative view of what it means for people to call themselves followers of Jesus. Uh, They see Christianity as a a no religion, a bit repressive, uh, full of rules and obligations and actions that you have to take, otherwise God squashes you like a fly. And what happens when you become a Christian is you enter into this Uh, a set of lifelong obligations that just never ends. Uh, I know people who feel that way. I think that Christianity is a bit more like a a mortgage on a house. You buy a house and if you make 79 payments of, you know, $1,463 every fortnight uh, for about 30 years, then the house is yours, just like an endless financial tunnel 
that you can never escape. People think Christianity is like that. It's not what the Bible says. Christianity is not like endless mortgage payments. It's more like having a, a great aunt you didn't even know existed who was extremely wealthy and dies and leaves you 30 million bucks and you didn't even know she was alive. Yeah, it's just pure grace, undeserved, just suddenly gets popped into your bank, bank account. That's what Christianity is all about. The God who takes the initiative to rescue us even though we don't deserve it, and even though we're doing everything that causes God rightly to forget us. But God is not like that. He is gracious and kind. You see, Christianity is all about what God has done for us, not we doing something for God. But can I say that once you you understand that, I talk to believers regularly who still get this wrong in an ongoing way. I, I still, I, people say, yeah, yeah, I know that, I get that, that I get into a relationship with God because of his grace and then it's all about the rules to make God happy with the way I live. Can I say it's just total garbage? It's just rubbishy thinking when you think about the Bible. I, I worked in a law office for a few years and I did it in the time where we had the changeover from manual typewriters, some of you won't even know what that is, but manual typewriters to computers, okay? Uh, uh, That's the day. Now, I want you to get into the frame here because with manual typewriters, you you had no ability just to backspace and correct, right? Whatever you produced was done, okay? Now, when it came to wills and documents like that that we did a lot of, they had to be word perfect right from the get-go because if you made a mistake, you just pulled it out, ripped it up, started again. So we would do these documents, might be five pages, the secretaries would produce them. They would then have to read the documents to each other to make sure they were word perfect. They would have to spell the words that were tricky words, including names and other things that were included in the will. Any mistakes? Page just got ripped up, typed that again. Can you imagine how revolutionary it was for legal officers to have computers with pro forma documents that just got produced, word processing, It just changed the profession overnight. Now, imagine for a moment uh, that a firm, say like the one I worked in, had a couple of traditional senior partners in it. We've been going with word processing computers for three years and then one of the senior partners comes in one day and says, you know, I just just long for the days of the old manual typewriters. Weren't they the good old days? They were just wonderful, just terrific. We're going to get rid of those computers and reintroduce the manual typewriters because they were so good. You know, you really got in contact with the paper that way. You know, uh, can you imagine anyone doing that? It's just, just be crazy. Can I say, I talk to Christians who do that all the time. And here's the way it works. I've become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all by his grace and mercy towards me in Christ. But I know that in order to maintain that relationship with God, it's up to me to do the work and put in the effort and keep the rules and perform. Otherwise, I'm out. Friends, that is going back to the manual typewriters. Once you've tasted the new thing, that's what Jesus is saying here. Now that I have arrived, 
that is dispensed with. You have relationship with God by grace and you keep on in relationship with God by his mercy and his grace. You see, this wedding at Cana in Galilee, it's an occasion where God's glory is revealed and it's revealed through Jesus. It signals the death of religion, the death of me trying to get into God's good books by what I do. Right? That is not the case. It points to the death of Jesus and the wonderful access to God that we have because of what he's done and the ongoing access we have to God because of what he's done. And in heaven, the access to God we have because the lamb was slain. It's because of what God has done from beginning until end. Now, can I say, if you don't know the grace of God, if you've not encountered that at all, can I encourage you to find out more about it? Read one of the books that Cameron was pointing us to just a few moments ago. Get a hold of one of the Gospels, like John's Gospel, and read it through and see all about the grace and the mercy of God. Right, investigate further. But if you do know the grace of God, then please, my brothers and sisters in Christ, remember that you are living in the day of the wedding reception every day. Always living in the day of God's grace and kindness towards you in his son. Don't ever forget that. Keep enjoying it and relishing it and giving thanks to God for it. That's who we are. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, a reminder of your great kindness towards us as we read about uh, this sign, a sign that points us to the hour, to the glory that you have revealed in your Son. Father, we thank you for that extraordinary grace and mercy you've shown us. Help us to just dwell in it, to know it, uh, to rejoice in what you've done for us, to be thankful for what you've done for us. And Father, we pray you'll help us to live in it. Uh, we know how easy it is uh, to go back to our own uh, rules and regulations and performance. But Father, we pray that we'll rely on Jesus and what he's done for us and his death for us. Uh, Father, be gracious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.